Hey everyone, I'm Francesca Maxime and welcome to this special edition of the Rerooted podcast. I am coming to you from Nipmuckland here in Massachusetts at the home of my family of origin, um, where I've been sheltering in place for the last month or so. Um, but I spent a couple of months in New York City prior to that during COVID. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I identify as a multi-ethnic woman. I am Haitian and Dominican and Italian American. And in some circles I might be said or called to be, or I may even be experiencing that I am uh, light-skinned or white privileged passing or white racially privileged or light-skinned privileged passing. Um, depending on uh, who meets me and, and what they're thinking of me that day. But the truth is I'm Haitian, Dominican, and Italian American. And because of that mix, um, I feel like I've been given a, a gift really in a way, which is that I am in a both and kind of a situation where I can and do engage in spaces that are for uh, people of color, people of culture, the global major majority. And I also engage in spaces that are, although I'm not uh, a Spanish speaker fluently, I've you know learned a little bit when I was a kid, um, are for the Latinx community. And I also have spent a lot of time, as we all do, in uh, a culture that's founded around white body supremacy in white spaces. And uh, for a really long time, had no cognizance of my participation in the way in which I would become complicit and sort of collude in how I showed up in white spaces and assumed that that was um, pretty much the way things were. I was on a date uh, a few years ago. Um, I want to say four or five years ago, definitely prior to 2016. So it was probably around 2015. Might have even been that summer. And <laughs> the person said to me, you know, Black Lives Matter. And um, he was white, but he was an MC. He was like a rapper. And he was very much in tune with what was happening in um, communities of color and, and with that Black Lives Matter movement. And I remember saying something that I'll never forget. I said, all lives matter. And then I went on to look at the dog that was sitting next to me at the bar outside because it was summertime. And I said, well, heck, Dalmatians lives matter because I love cats. I love animals um, and, and dogs. But it didn't even occur to me that by saying something along those lines, how far away I was from any sense of what the history of racism in this country means, how insidious it is, what structural and systemic inequity does to people who have white racial advantage or inheritance, how it perpetuates all of the mental health and emotional health and spiritual health issues that are present in white bodies and if left unchecked often the violence that we often see that has really galvanized our nation um, enough is enough uh, what we resist persists 
And uh, we see protests now with righteous anger, frustration, irritation, not taking the knee for Colin Kaepernick, not understanding that, you know, this whole culture that we're in is a culture of supremacy, which means in order for me to have more, you have to have less. I have to be better than you. This sort of cultural narcissism, this whiteness, this elephant in the room, this carbon monoxide, this gaslighting, things that so many have been trying to call attention to, in particular, black trans women have really, really called attention to this, and queer black women, and just the community of black people in this country, not just Dr. Martin Luther King, all the boots on the ground, the women, um, the men, the young people that we see in the streets right now. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you all of this because I was not woke at all, at all, at all, even though I'm multi-ethnic, even though I always claim my Haitian, Dominican, Italian, American heritage, even though I was someone who had a mother who married a black man who was not born in this country, was, you know, from the Caribbean. Um, we never talked about race at home. We didn't talk about it. It wasn't something that we talked about. They were Italian. They came over. It was assimilate. It was shut up. My mom became a doctor. It was, if you're a woman and you want to get through medical school, one out of five women or girls at the time, whatever, they were 20, uh, to get through, you shut up. Um, this assimilation, the cost of not being able to take over with us and speak at home the Italian language that my mom's side of the family spoke, they couldn't, they couldn't practice their language. The genocide that this country is founded on, the land grab, the revolution uh, from Great Britain to come here that was in service to elitism and classism and greed, really. Jack Cornfield, my mentor, talks about greed all the time. And how, again, that's the Buddha's main teaching, craving, greed, never enough, insatiability. Our addictions, our smokings, our gamblings, our not able to sort of recognize and notice the pull, notice the, the reactivity, um, have a capacity you know, bodily and somatically for distress tolerance and then just sort of, you know, want more of that. Or the other, which is what we often see with white racial fragility, as Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams talks about, it's not white fragility, it's white racial fragility, is that there's a certain idea of dissociating. Like if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. If this isn't something that we mention, we're not gonna, you know, worry about it. Uh, it doesn't happen here. Or gee, uh, yeah, I feel bad about that. There's a lot of hand-wringing. But there isn't really this coming out to say racism is a thing. White body supremacy is a thing. It's not just for the KKK. It is for us to understand how, as the Buddha would teach us, not clear seeing is the root of the problem that nirvana is clear seeing, and that if our liberation is interbound, then me not seeing this necessarily limits my liberation, no matter how peaceful or how settled or how comfortable I may feel in my nice house or my meditation hall, 
that unless I can reverberate and feel the pain of another, of a black body who's here in the United States subjected to systemic racism, unless I can feel that pain, then all of these like sort of nirvanic, you know, rapturous states of connectedness to what are they serving, right? The Dalai Lama, His Holiness, talks about this in terms of where is the compassionate action, that all of this awakening, all of this alertness, all of this insight in the tradition that I'm trained in, which is more secular and Vipassanic, meaning it's insight meditation, basically, that all of this is to have a touch point where you feel, you recognize, you notice, same as, and then we move into listening, asking, doing the populations that don't have white racial advantage in this structurally unequal society. And that we commit to this path, just like we commit to the path of mindfulness, we commit to the path of awakening, we commit to the path of embodied liberation. We make our commitment to that path. I made that commitment unbeknownst to me when I was doing my um, original sort of inner processing work, doing somatic experiencing and my first mindfulness trainings. I didn't know any about any of this stuff, um, you know, five years ago. And I'd been a journalist for 20 years. And one day I ended up in jail because I didn't use my directional when I was turning. I was leaving dinner. The officer arrested me because I didn't take or not take a breathalyzer. It's an automatic uh, in the slammer, so to speak. And I was in there overnight with about a dozen, maybe 20 or so other women who it was not their first time that they were there. And they were mostly women of color. And I was on the phone mostly with my mom all night, scared out of my mind. And she was able to help me find a lawyer and resources to help get me out the next day. And I don't have a record. And I never drank again. I never, um, I never spent time with the kind of people that I was spending time with that were not healthy for me. And I changed careers, essentially, and left journalism because it was the campaign at 2016. And I didn't know how much I had to contribute when I was sort of in the soup of that around watching the way tweets were being covered and discussed even at the highest levels of um, journalism where I was working at that time, which was PBS NewsHour. So I got a break um, for whatever reason, mainly probably because my mom could afford to get me an attorney. And I don't think these other women... I know many of them were going straight to Rikers. That's what they said and had been there before. But I, I don't know. I was scared straight, if you will. And that, that was enough to make me commit that sort of dark night of the soul. I remember being there. There's no phone. I mean, there was a phone on the wall that, by the way, the bills were like two or $300 apparently, which just goes to show you that, you know, all of the privileges that we take uh, for granted when we're, here on our cell phones, texting, doing stuff, you know, able to chat with so-and-so and whatnot. They cost a gazillion dollars with um, being incarcerated. Um, 
saying a lot of ums and I'm noticing that, which is annoying me that I have self-compassion around that. So. so I come to you honestly. I come to you as someone who was in darkness and waking and is waking, not woke, waking, trying to share, trying to spread seeds, trying to be authentic in that like, I didn't get it. I was like colorblind. I don't see color or sure you're black or white or, you know, but I knew I had implicit bias. I knew that because I was already grappling with my own ethnic identity and the way that my ex-fiance said to me, well, four out of your five bridesmaids are black. And I was like, whoa, he was Armenian. The Armenian genocide is what Hitler said that the uh, Jewish genocide was you know, his model for. And there was a lot of trauma in his history and in his immediate family of origin, but also in his intergenerational history and a lot of resilience as there are in many of us. But it's this piece of dissociating and this piece of not naming and this piece of not recognizing what's here and what's in the room. And so to that end, in these trauma communities that I've been blessed to, to, to benefit from with somatic experiencing, with, you know, Jack and Tara's mindfulness training program, with the indigenous focusing oriented therapy work that I um, was trained in and, and the focusing oriented therapy, and then the relational life couples work. I, I had all these trainings that it brings you into an experiential place in much the same way that meditation can but doesn't always that for me anyway, speaking of my own direct experience, gave me a portal into something else that was possible and into a deep, deep well of pain and suffering that I had felt, but I didn't feel like I should feel. I thought it was all about my dad or my mom, or they didn't do this right or that right, or my family or my friends or my ex or whatever. I didn't really go deeper. Like maybe this isn't all mine. Maybe there's something wrong with the system. Maybe there's something that's off that, that hurts all of us, even those with privilege. People would say, oh, you know, you're attractive or you went to an Ivy League school or you're on TV, you're a news anchor. I was like, yeah, why don't I feel like this is special? Why do I, why am I suffering? Like it was real suffering. But it was like my suffering. It was like localized. I didn't have any view. I didn't have any expansion for it. Now it's so different that I remember sitting at a retreat Jack was hosting at Garrison, and I was just a waterfall. I was tears, just a waterfall. And I remember he said to me, Well, those are the tears of the way. And I cry as I think about it now because that heart of mercy and compassion, recognition and affirmation of all the grief that I had for all my personal, all my local stuff that did get touched into in a different way and could be held in a different way and could be tolerated within me in a different way. Having a capacity to do that, then 
emboldened me to be able to have a capacity to do the grief work and the history learning work of what the history of racism is in this country, which is so ugly. And what we saw with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Nina Pop, Ahmaud Arbery, and Christian Cooper, what we've seen is the legacy of that, of redlining, of inequity, of Jim Crow laws, of three-fifths of a person, of ownership of humans. And this is what? a few hundred years ago. <clears throat> and when you see the pictures and when you read the history and when you hear the accounts, and yet at the same time, we have this sort of left brain knowledge of like, oh, well, we all come from this one ancestor in Africa, this one ancestor that the researchers and it's in common, you know, knowledge known as Lucy, but is actually Dinknesh, the African name for this little human, this being that we came from, the mother. And that race we know is a construct, right? It is a cultural reality, just like we have our re relative reality with our disintegrating, you know, skin and wrinkles. And, you know, Jack says you get more fur here and less fur there. And, you know, all these things that happen. We're a bag of skin and bones, right? I think that's why they meditate with all of the carcasses uh, in the, you know, Burma, or Thailand, wherever, you know, monks do that and have been trained is to be like, yeah, I'm impermanent. Nothing's perfect, permanent or personal, as Ruth King says, but like, this is just like a thing. And then there's all the Dharma teachings on the sinews and the fluids of the body. Why, why are they even, why do they exist? Because we can't take ourselves so seriously in that way. Like, we're just processed. This is all moving through. Everybody's got this. And we are all having this common ancestor, this origin. And, you know, it's African. It's not white. It's not the United States of America. It's not North American that our common ancestry is in fact um, something that unites us, our heart mind, our chitta, unites us. And yet skin color or pigmentation, melanin, has been used in service to division, in service to greed in service to more for some less for the rest right if you read if you study if you take these wide awake courses that you sort of grew up in tandem with you know tara's insight dc um you know they're at their own separate organization they're not a part of uh washington insight but wideawake.org take those classes if you haven't already you'll learn. What did we give up to be white? What's the cost? And how is that so shut down, rigid, tight? You know, when we do the somatic work, we realize, you know, we do body scans, MBSR, you think about, oh, 
there's a tightness here in my shoulder and, you know, gee, you know, well, yeah, that's my evolutionary negativity bias, my fear response. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling like this is a threat here. I need to protect myself. But when Amy Cooper weaponizes, I need to protect myself to a black Harvard educated birder, member of the board of the Audubon Society, she knows that she has a privilege based on her race and can weaponize her gender in that case to be a damsel in distress, if you will. And we kind of can see like exactly how these things have been insidiously operating for so long. And we may feel shame about that. So back to the somatic piece, we may want to collapse, we want to hide, dissociate, say it's wrong, decry it. But where are we in it? What are we doing in it? How are we with it? You know, Tara talks about doing the U-turn, looking inside. Can we practice rain about racism? Recognize, allow, investigate, nourish. Can we do that about that? What is our commitment to our path of liberation? Where does that live? Can we commit to being anti-racist? Being non-racist isn't working. We say it's unbearable. It's overwhelming. When I started to do this work, and I took Dr. Joy DeGruy's <clears throat> class. She wrote a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. She also offers an 11-week class I highly recommend. It is the best to learn the history. That I just was in a six-month, I don't know, depression. I didn't know what I didn't know. It was like, what? All lives matter? I said that? Oh. Dalmatians lives matter. I mean, shame, but also just like despair, grief, mourning, sadness. That lasted for a while. And I had learned how to do some of the somatic stuff where I could breathe and self-regulate enough to say, okay, so these are the beliefs I was holding. This is my conditioning. We talked to Dan Siegel. He talks about limbic conditioning, subcortical synaptic, you know, fusions, what gets fired, wired together, you know, <laughs> it's late. <gasps> Neurons that fire together, wire together. If we're continuing to play the same tape, you know, Jack calls it the top 10 tunes about who we are or how we need to be or what we're believing or any of those things. And we're not pulling it apart, right? It's like, okay, I have this somatic reaction. It could be anger. It could be dissociation and, you know, delusion. It's always, what do they say? Mindfulness is moment to moment, friendly, curious, present moment attention to whatever is here, allowing it to be there without pushing away, pulling in toward or zoning out about. When we talk about racism, it's so easy to have those responses, but to be mindful about it is to be able to be with our experience and notice it. And when I was doing these trainings, I was like, whoa, this is a lot. But I had built up somewhat a capacity for that. So that's what your practice, that's what the practices are for, to build a capacity to tolerate the distress. So then you can move into the compassionate, wise action, the equanimous action, the non-reactivity, the response ability, ability to respond wisely with wisdom. The two wings, insight and compassion, insight and 
really this this embodied connection. So it's kind of rambling, but poetry will not save us, but it is one of the ways in which we can start to dig in. Who knows, maybe poetry will save us. Um, I know it saved me many times and many, many folks many times, but poetry alone, I should say, will not save us. But poetry is definitely part of what will save us, as is any kind of art or music or creativity or, you know, connection around that. So, you know, art, of course, is, 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 a, is another way to dance, you know, movement, um, not in a spiritually bypassing way, not in a dissociative way, but in a way to stay grounded and connected and know that this is, that we have a, you know, there is a body. There is a body. And that there is breath. And I wrote a poem on the first day of Passover that I am going to read now. And then I'm going to read you another poem. My poem is called The Sound of Sirens. And it's before the protest began. It was written in April on the 8th. Today's June 3rd, 2020. The Sound of Sirens, COVID-19, New York City. From the shower of my Brooklyn apartment, finally getting clean at 5 p.m., even though I have been up since 4.30 this morning, I hear an ambulance siren and notice they don't seem to come by as frequently as they did just a few days ago or even as often as they did a couple of weeks ago. They say we are at the apex. This afternoon, I watched a webinar given by an NYU professor specializing in the great disasters of New York. He went back to the 1800s, describing how, out of these blizzards, bombings, and flus, we emerged with a better subway, a more diversified economy, and that tech companies and downtown Manhattan residents were a good replacement to help regenerate the city after 9-11, the 2008 economic crisis, and bank bailouts. The professor suggested that when this pandemic is over, whatever that means, we'll all have our temperatures checked regularly before entering buildings or shared spaces, that movie theaters will have seats miles apart, that the Nets and the Knicks won't hold games nor be missed since they're such terrible teams anyhow, and that buildings will be retrofitted and COVID-proofed in much the same way that our post-9-11 airports now require X-ray screeners along with our de-shoeing and disrobing. He says the new New York economy should include building a sleek biotech center in Queens, Corona, the part of that borough with the highest death rate from coronavirus, currently lacking Manhattan's big name research hospitals. I recall the Instagram social media post and aerial photo of billionaire music mogul David Geffen's yacht in the Caribbean, his council. I'm hoping everybody is staying safe, and I'm reminded of the article that I read describing the architectural designs of bunkers the rich are installing in their homes so they can be quarantined safely at will and with comfort. My shower's head sprays me clean with piped-in treated water. 
I haven't prayed in years and ask no one if this is a holy moment. I notice the silence. The audible desert in between the blaring red ambulance horn, spinning, signaling, another trip to or from the hospital carrying perhaps another body or perhaps a man or a woman, maybe still filled with life and breath. The news reports clearly tally their ages, but not their races. We know they're bus and cab drivers, MTA workers, grocery store clerks, restaurant delivery men, black and brown. The newspaper photo of the woman cleaning the subway without mask or glove lingers in my mind, as do the other photos of the third grade teacher from Brownsville and the greeter, Miss Janice, at the Brooklyn YMCA. Taking a walk in Prospect Park through my mask, I say hello to the man and woman without them, cleaning up trash, identified as parks and rec staff by their green boiler suits. He replies, how are you doing, as I pass by my first time out of the house in three weeks. Unlike some shower heads with long and pointy nozzles or removable handheld controls, mine is plain silver with a wide flat head, reminding me on this first day of Passover of the photos of those I had seen in the chambers at Auschwitz, once spewing either water or gas or perhaps both. On this day, I wonder if the sounds of the trains shuttling to and from Dachau and Buchenwald were as loud and frequent as these Brooklyn sirens, or if the trains were more muffled, muted, silent, as the people they passed by were, as my apartment building is now. Another ambulance blares by, Hui-yu, hui-yu, hui-yu. The time elapsed in between the sounds, now long enough to write this poem, whereas just a week ago, another siren would have emerged with the start of each stanza, or even a new line's beginning. Cleansing myself so late in the day, I ponder, why I even bothered? Is it better late than never? Can I start my day over again, fresh now? If I feel clean, will I gain motivation? I look at the shower head, dripping flat and cold. I wonder, what is the cost of the silence between the sirens? I wonder how loud, how jarring and frequent the ringing must be to get me into this shower earlier for this mundane ritual purification. I wonder how many sirens it will take to surface me from my slumber, to rouse me from my warm bed's cocoon to clean up, to clean off, perhaps to arise anew and at last wake up and like these droplets, let the sound of the silence between these sirens sink in. So, Are we different? Are we unique? Are we same as? What do we notice when we think about that? How do we feel? There's a poem that I was sent the other day from 
a man who tells me that I've been in prison for over a decade for a crime I did not do. And within that time, I write to Ven about my frustrations and inequities of the criminal justice system. And I would like to share a post with you about my case and also a poem. I saw you on TV recently and I felt your poetry and I wanted to share mine with you. Thank you for your time. And I would like to hear your feedback on my post and my poem. And what he's referring to is a feature that PBS did on me because I had won a poetry prize. <clears throat> this is from Deshaun Ragland in New Jersey. Fresh off the boat to a system that is lethal, we had to fight to vote just to make things equal, not to misquote, but they said we was three-fifths of a man. My people, equality for us was never the plan, but we made a stand to demand change because unity and power go hand in hand. You see, at first we was brought here just to farm this strange land, beaten and raped as their way to reprimand, and from there we grew. So you got to understand that to make it through the dark, you must give your brother and sister a helping hand. Because one idea can spark the fire in their heart and start a revolution that is off the charts, like how Malcolm and Martin found a solution to uplift our society by washing out the pollution in thy mind. Tupac said that even a rose can grow out from a harsh reality. So if no one offers you their hand, then please take mine. Don't panic. Stay organic. We're from the same vine. There's only seven degrees of separation. So if you're white or Hispanic, we are still related. Even if your ancestors weren't traded or forced to work on a plantation, our jaded views need to be faded. Because to change this nation, we must combine and be kind and be the vision to the ones who are blind. We must stand up and show our spine to commit and dismantle the school to prison pipeline because they target kids as young as nine. No exaggeration. Hatred is exploitation with an evil twisted design that you don't want and me that don't want you and me to align leaving you with no reparation or peace of mind. So you go to vote and then say, never mind. You think your opinion don't count and that's your observation. Well, then let Obama be your inspiration. We need to vote for a better public education and affordable medication. We need to force legislation to invest more in rehabilitation. PTSD passed down like an infestation from being hung by a rope to years of being beat in the back of a police station. But we are the people. We are the people. We are the people. And we must work on creating a better civilization. And if Obama ain't enough, then look toward Garvey, Ali, or Mrs. Parks for motivation. Even through our incarceration, through these bars, we can reach out to the next generation and push for them to vote so our kids don't become our duplication and find themselves in a similar situation. Let's teach them that there's power in their pigmentation and self-identification so that they'll learn to embrace their individualization. We are the people. We are the people. We are the people of this nation. You are my sister. You are my mother. All of you are my bloodline. You are my brother. You are my father. 
and to inspire change. You don't need to be an Einstein. Just action like how King threw up the peace sign. He smiled in the face of danger. My kinfolk, I am not a stranger. So come close, and in my embrace we can both shine. Now, pay close attention to the next line. We was hosed down as we protest and was put in detention, but we are still standing, and because of that, we now have the 15th Amendment. So go tell all from east to west that all men and women should go and vote, and now that is what I define as dope. Sean Raglan, New Jersey, incarcerated. How is that different from the Buddha's advice? His invitation into our own direct experience. How is it? I don't see any difference. So one of the things that I want to invite everyone to consider is just noticing how you're feeling, noticing what's coming up for you right now. Take a breath. What's happening in your neck, your throat, your back, your belly, your chest. Is there any emotion? Is there a checking out? Is there a checking in? How's your posture? Are you leaning in or leaning back? Just notice, name it. Restlessness, restlessness, thinking, thinking. Sound, hearing, hearing. You know, these six sense doors are here for a reason. They're here to be a portal for us to recognize what's happening with us so that we can recognize what that is and then say, oh, and bring that mindful attention, that curiosity, that friendliness. Like Jack says, you don't kick the puppy. The circle of compassion isn't complete unless it starts with you. So you're included there. So you bring it in. Oh, what's this about? Huh, I'm having a hard time with this. Hmm, is that okay? Okay, can we make space for that? Big sky mind. Can we make space for that? And then from there, can we look in? and then figure out what we wanna do going forward. I, today, had a first meeting of something that is a new initiative, and I am calling it uh, AREA, Anti-Racism Response, Embodiment, Accountability, and Action, A-R-R-E-A-A. Anti-racism response, embodiment, accountability, and action. And it's an ongoing, open, weekly process group for white-bodied, white racially advantaged therapists, coaches, teachers, mindfulness leaders, professionals, executives, whomever, to come and, you know, it's sort of an ask-me-anything space where we can lean into what happens when we get into the shame spiral, what happens when we don't wanna talk about race, what happens when we say, oh my God, I don't even wanna hear somebody say anti-racist because I don't like the word racist and I'm not racist because I do good things for people and I even do things for black people. 
but I don't want people to think about black people as much as I want people to think about whiteness and interrogating that and getting comfortable with that being a thing and understanding what whiteness and white body supremacy and white cultural assimilation and you know all of these things that come out of it materialism individualism racism for sure sexism patriarchy how these are all part of this system of dominance violence never enough insatiability craving craving for what peace happiness equanimity belonging nirvana right but all of this is samsaric they don't exist separate from one another it's not two so this is the relative and then that's the absolute so how do we get there well can we make a commitment today to be anti-racist you can join my group you can join any group you can go to the classes that i mentioned you can go to my website maximeclarity.com m-a-x-i-m-e clarity c-l-a-r-i-t-y.com and in the back there's a ton of resources on there about racial injury and it's not just racial injury for people of culture or the global majority for black and brown people for our asian brothers and sisters who experience threat and violence and harm when our leaders were calling it the chinese flu or the asian flu not cool or our Latinx brothers and sisters and children who are being held in cages at the border. Not okay. And there's also something very specific about the way in which black indigenous and people of color, Native Americans, indigenous people, native to this land, the land I'm on now, Nipmuc land here in Massachusetts, Lenape and Conarse land at the place that I now inhabit and call home of Brooklyn, New York, that that that's a, that we are living out still the legacy of the founding of this country which is genocide and enslavement of indigenous and black bodies and that lives in us no matter what so setting our intention you know, you'll often hear, hear people say, you know, what's your intention? What's your deepest intention in meditation halls? What's your deepest intention? Could we be open to the possibility of having a deepest intention of being more courageous about being an embodied anti-racist to committing to that practice? That's the invitation I want to offer today to consider. Can I, can I make that commitment? And then hold myself in compassion along the path, knowing that I'm not alone, knowing that I have all my other brothers and sisters that are also committed to being anti-racist and knowing that feeling connected in that community in itself is, is, is healing. It has been for me in my direct experience. It's not better than, oh, I'm better than you. You're not as good as me. Somebody's doing their work, so that means that it's, you know, no. You know, Lama Rod says, you know, not all of us are going to make it. And it's true. 
not all of us are going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm making it. But I am so grateful, so incredibly grateful to be here now. Able to experience some level of insight or wakingness that before I didn't know existed. To me, that's liberatory. And, and that's the gasoline in my tank of being able to move forward with this work. So it's, it's, it's an invitation to name whiteness as the real thing that needs to be interrogated and to really look at white body supremacy as the elephant in the room, the carbon monoxide that's killing us all in this country and globally, to be honest. Skin color is a constructed thing that if you take Joy DeGruy's class, you're going to see all the reasons why and how it was created. Linnaeus, species, all these weird categorizations that people made up. Just like we make up stories in our heads and then we believe them when we live our lives from that place. Or we hold on to things like, you know, the story of when they're passing, you know, the <laughs> why are you still holding the, the canoe after, you know, I, I, you've already crossed the river, you know. You know, you can put it down now. It, it took you across there. Whatever we did, whatever we've learned, whatever programming we've had, whatever subcortical synaptic fusions have kept us going to date did help us to fit into a society of white body supremacy and, and privilege and patriarchy, you know, have helped us in our family of origin to either stay silent, to get angry, to check out, to dissociate, to fawn, fix, flight, feet, fr freeze, you know, all these things. We know that's our evolutionary negativity bias. We know this. That's okay. And now that we're aware of these things, or we can open to our awareness about these things, now we can start to work with that and process that. And then from that place, move into being a full partner, an accomplice, a co-conspirator, beyond allyship. Right? Because we get something out of giving something. And it's not just making somebody a sandwich, although it could be that. It's much deeper. It's, it's our opportunity to be humanized through our humility, through our path work, through our commitment in a way that is transformative. It has been for me. So that's all I have to say for now. Brothers and sisters, people of culture, like me, people who have some measure of light skin or white racial privilege, like me, people who have different gender identities and sexual orientations and abilities, faiths, practices, You know, fear is the cheapest room in the house, as they say, as Rumi or Hafez, I forget what it is, the poet says, build a better house, you know, we can do this, and we are in good company. So I invite you to join me on this journey. Thank you.